Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Main Street Finance Podcast. I am, of course, Alex, your host, and today I have something for you a little bit different. We're going to talk about real estate and how you can invest in it by essentially doing the opposite of what most financial podcasters and bloggers would tell you. We are going to be talking to Lane Kawaoka. Lane was a civil engineer who threw away the American dream of go to college, graduate with a great GPA, go to work for a big company, have a spouse, a house, 2.5 kids, and then work till you're 65. Lane is currently a real estate investor that lives in Hawaii while managing his empire of more than 4,500 units across the continental United States. Now, with all of that said, let's go ahead and bring him on. Lane Kawaoka, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Alex. Oh, it's no problem at all. I'm just glad we were able to find time to get you on. Before we really get into all the craziness here, let's go into a little bit more of your story and how you maybe got knocked off the rails of that typical American dream. Yeah, as you said, like I kind of walked that linear path of go to school, get a good job. I happened to be good at math and science when I was like eight or nine. So I eventually became an engineer. I went to college and I graduated with a industrial engineering degree and I became a construction supervisor. It's my first job. And so, you know, living that civil engineer type of professional career path initially, and still up to this point, I was kind of fooled by all the financial dogma of go buy a house to live in, which I don't necessarily believe is the right thing to do, especially if you live in high priced areas. But that's what I did living in Seattle. I bought a house to live in. And because I was never home, because I was traveling all the time for work, I decided to rent it out and the rents were like 2200 a month and the mortgage was 1600 a month. And to a young 20-something-year-old kid, that was a lot of beer money left over. <laughs> and that was the start of you know realizing that, yeah, this is the way to do it. Passive cash flow. And this is my ticket out of this, this job I don't really particularly like. So you definitely went into it. You got what sounds to be a very great paying job, but then, you know, very high priced area. You're in there almost spending it as quick as you get in it. And then you've got that beer money because, look, I've done it, too, straight out of college. It's like, wow, all of a sudden I'm getting real adult money. So, well, let's go have fun with it. So something I wanted to ask you about specifically is I was reviewing you and your story. And I mean, you have your website, you have a podcast. Do you want to go into that a little bit and how you decided to not only build your empire, but sort of inspire others to start building theirs? Yeah, so that was back in 2009 when I bought my first rental property. I was really frugal back then. I was really into like the personal finance blog sphere and you know, I was able to save 50, 80 grand a year for my day job. So I just saved up to buy rental properties and I wasn't doing anything special. I was just, you know, saving up the 20% down payment that's needed. I eventually got up to 11 rentals in 2014 and 15. And at that point, you know, all my friends were asking me, well, how I was buying all these like properties? Because, you know, then I transitioned to buying more properties, you know, not where I live, Birmingham, Atlanta, and Indianapolis, more for cash flow, you know, where the rent to value ratios were 1% or higher. And all my buddies were asking me how I did it. So I just started to record it because a lot of those guys wouldn't do anything. And I was kind of felt like I was wasting my time repeating myself again and again. But that was kind of how I started the podcast, kind of starting the simple passive cash flow website. Okay. And then let's go into an article I had seen, or rather something that you talk about a lot is reasons why not to invest in tax advantaged accounts such as a 401k or an IRA. 
Now, I'm not going to tell your story for you, but would you mind going into maybe why shouldn't you take advantage of those 401ks or the IRAs? Yeah, I mean, before I go into this, I know that what I'm about to say is definitely alternative advice. And, you know, people think I'm the Antichrist for saying something like this. <laughs> but um, look, man, I, I'm financially free. I know what I'm talking about these days. I got 4,500 rental units. And I'll tell you that there is sort of a financial dogma advice out there for a lot of things. And just 401ks are just one of them. And there's a way that the affluent and accredited investors do things. Let's call them the wealthy. They live by a different set of rules. and They do things very differently than the average person. So with that said, you know, 401ks are tax sheltered plans where the, the true term is called QRP, Qualified Retirement Plan. But you put your money in and you kind of get it tax sheltered as it grows. But a lot of folks in my circle, we don't use them for four big reasons. First of all, I'm going to get financially independent, financially free well before I'm 50, 60. So I don't want my money locked up in a vehicle like this. To I'm, I don't even know how old you need to be, 60 or 70, but I want my money today. I want to use my money today as I hit financial independence. And so would you. Number two, I am likely going to be in a higher tax bracket in the future than today. Therefore, I would rather pay my taxes today and get it out of one of these things today. Most financial dogma out there will probably tell people, yeah, you'll in the future, when you quit your, your high paying W-2 job, you will be in a much lower tax bracket, your income will go down. And that makes sense, but I don't live that narrative. When I get older, I'm gonna be baller status and making a lot more money. And therefore my tax bracket is gonna be higher. That's why I want to pay my taxes today. Thirdly, I mean, just look the way this country is going. I mean, how else are they going to pay for all the stimulus money for the pandemic? We're going to have to pay the piper at some point, And that just means higher taxes in the future. Again, I'd rather pay my taxes today. Now, fourthly, now this gets a little complicated. Uh, we haven't really talked about why we invest in real estate. And, you know, for a lot of it, we we have these tax advantages. And, but when you invest as a credit investor and a lot of syndications are not a credit investor, potentially, you get a lot of this bonus depreciation and you're able to write off a big portion of the property in the first year. Unlike most rental property owners that own their own single family homes, it's on a small scale and they write it off over 27 years. So the game that a lot of the wealthy play is we use these passive losses to offset our active income. And when you're investing via a retirement account, you don't get any of those passive losses. Therefore, you don't get that lever to pull that. You don't get the opportunity to make this little maneuver on your taxes. So for that fourth reason, no 401ks for me, no bueno. <laughs> and with a lot of what you're saying, I completely agree. Like a lot of bloggers and podcasters or really just all the gurus will say, you know, max out the 401k. Personally, I, I don't I don't do that. I mean, could I? I could get close. I don't think I could max it out just yet. But if I max out my 401k every year, now I'm 25. So if I max it out every year from 25 to 65, I might retire with four or five million dollars with some reasonable assumptions. But that's at 65. I'm not trying to work until 65 unless I have some job that's really fulfilling. Maybe I get a lot of vacation time, but that's besides the point. Most likely, I do not want to work until age 65. So putting a lot of my money, a large percentage of my money, into a 401k or an IRA all the way until retirement, that, that just, 
doesn't match with what I'm trying to do with wealth building. So I 100% agree with you there. Yeah, I think the biggest thing, and maybe I kind of glazed over it, is like when you're investing in a 401k or any retirement account, even Roth, like you're kind of locked into a bunch of garbage investments. And when I say garbage investments, I mean retail investments. You know, the 401ks, all these things weren't around before the 1980s. They're, they're kind of new creations. And in my opinion, it's kind of when the government got in cahoots with all these Wall Street companies to make a very simple way for people to invest in a bunch of garbage. Hmm. I've honestly never thought of it like that. But I mean, I can see it with. Well, I mean, I think I think I got finally turned on to this and I started to develop a very sour taste in my mouth when I bought my just my first single family home rental. I mean, people can go to my website and look what how I break down the numbers um, at simplepassivecastle.com slash returns. But take my word for it, like when you own these rental properties, you're making like 20 to 30% returns on your money every year, at least. And back then I was like, well, if I'm making this much, why the heck am I only getting like 8% in my stock stuff, right? Like who the heck took all my money? And then when you start to break it down, right? Like that's, this is how Wall Street is created. It's off the hard sweat and tears off of, American workers who are ushered into these retail type of investments, right? Like I don't invest in Nordstrom because the markups are too high. The same thing here. Okay. So let's go into, we've talked about not putting your money in retirement accounts. So let's go ahead and just follow along with the pattern here. If we're not putting our money in retirement accounts, that means that, you know, we have to find something else to do with that. With you being, you know, an expert real estate investor, let's go ahead and run down that avenue. So just high level overview, maybe someone who's never thought of it before, really never went down the rabbit hole. What are some reasons why you would want to invest in just real estate, rental properties? Why would we want to go down that rabbit hole? Yeah. So what I look at investments, whether it's startups or, you know, crypto or buying gold, I look at it from like kind of three big perspectives. Like first, is it something that creates cash flow today? Is the investment support itself? So in rental real estate, you have an income, people pay your rents, and then you pay expenses, and you also account for some vacancy too. You want that thing to be cash flow positive from the get-go. And this is what sets real estate apart from, you know, the whole realm of real estate investing is huge, right? Like I don't, I'm not advocating for any kind of wholesaling, flipping, or any active real estate investing. I'm more on the passive investing side, just buy and hold. So the asset needs to kind of pay for itself and then kick out some cash flow in excess. Secondly, you know, I want that property to be leverageable. Real estate is one of those amazing things that the government gives us these sweet loans and, they, and they're begging us to do this. Low interest rates, fixed debt. I mean, it's amazing. And then real estate's a hard asset. You know, it's real, it's tangible. It's not like it's a paper asset that you know, if the president of Lululemon says something stupid, the price of the stock comes down 20, 30%, right? It's, it's not going to happen. Or you get Elon send a tweet, man, Tesla's stock price looks really high. I mean, it's probably too high. And then what, within an hour or two, the stock price dropped like 10%? Yeah, yeah, I, I think I heard that. I mean, I don't really pay attention much anymore. I have no paper assets because I don't like the stress. I've kind of developed the mindset of like, I, I kind of want to be in things that only I can control. Okay, so let's let's keep going. So we have these rental properties. You get some tax benefits. You get access to using leverage in your investments. And then they also provide you a cash flow. 
Yeah, I mean, I think like one thing to point out is, again, going back to the whole financial dogma, there's like this idea of the accumulation theory of you getting a large sum of money, like let's call it like $2 million and you live off of the dividends, you know, 4%, 5% for the rest of your life. So people strive their whole entire lives to build up this nest egg where I think that whole mentality is flawed. Like instead you should be creating multiple streams of income to create mini pensions today. And that's exactly what real estate is. I'm mean, just, just think like if you follow the normal track of going to school, get a good job, 2.5 kids, you invest in your 401k and you build it up to $2 million at, and you retire early at 55, whoop-de-doo, right? But you need a cash flow stream unless you're just going to dwindle the $2 million away. You're going to need to convert that into streams of cash flow. And why not begin with the end in mind and buy those rental properties that kick off the cash flow today so that when a pandemic happens or anything happens with one particular rental, you have multiple, multiple streams of income coming in. Okay, and let's go down that rabbit hole. Let's talk about streams of income. So let's say my target audience, I know most of the people on this podcast that listen to it because I get demographic information, you have a full-time job. Let's just go with you have a full-time job if you're listening to this podcast and maybe you're interested in real estate. So for those people who maybe haven't turned off the episode yet, how can you get started in real estate while working your nine to five? Or how can you balance your time? And how well does that work out? Yeah, I mean, I I cater towards more higher net worth working professionals. So, I mean, we, we kind of stay more on the passive investing side. To be a passive investor, you need money, bro. You know, you need to come up with a 20% down payment on a $100,000 house. That's at least 20 grand. So if you don't have that, you probably need to find a better job, make money, or maybe be on the more active side of real estate, which I honestly don't do. Um, I don't I don't flip houses. I don't wholesale houses. I just don't do any of that because like my pedigree was I had an engineering job and that money made me a better return on my time than wholesaling houses or flipping houses. So that's what I did. All right. So let's play to your strengths. You have a higher net worth individual has to say you have that 20K. Let's say hypothetically, we have someone who either makes a lower income and is able to save over a longer period to get that 20%, or we have a higher income person that is having an easier time making that 20%. So let's say we have someone working that nine to five to where coming up with that 20% isn't a problem regardless of the timeline. What would maybe be your first steps in getting into real estate? Yeah, I mean, that that was kind of essentially my profile when I graduated college. I was able to save 20, 30 grand a year just out of college because I was pretty frugal back then. So I saved the money up and I bought a rental property, you know, I made sure it, it was 1% rent to value ratio or higher. So I would get a cash flow and then I just saved up for the next one. I bought a duplex in Seattle a few years later. And then eventually, seven years later, I had 11 rental properties. It's not a get rich quick thing. It's nothing too fancy or too tricky, but just save up and buy more assets. Very simple. Definitely. And it sounds like there's, you know, a domino effect or rather a snowball effect in that if you're saving 20K a year, which I think most people could do, like if you're listening to this podcast and if you believe in retiring early, you should be able to save 20% of your income, hypothetically. If you can save 20% of your income and what the average salary in America right now is around 50K, 55 well, if you're saving 20%, you should be pretty close to getting there to that 20K a year. Or if you're able to save even more, 
I think 20k a year in savings is doable, especially if you want to go all in towards this. And before you decide to go all into this, you need to really decide that this is what you want to do. But I think 20k a year, one house per year is very doable. And then you get that one house per year, maybe you get to year 3 or 4 where the cash flow from the 3 or 4 you currently have are allowing you to maybe get a house every 8 months. Then maybe it's every six months. Then maybe it's every four months. And then all of a sudden, you fast forward and you've got 4,500 units. Right, right. I mean, I'm not saying people need to jump in at the deep side of the pool on the get-go. I mean, it took me a long time. Probably took me like seven years to really take all my money out of my 401k. I didn't have any mess respect then. I didn't have anybody to talk some sense into me. So I was kind of walking both lines, doing the rental thing and still maxing out my 401k too but the, i saw the light pretty quickly but it uh, definitely took me longer than i thought of but i would say yeah you know you don't listen don't listen to a couple crazy guys on the podcast right take it slow buy a rental property right let some years go by and get proof of concept and then pull the plug on your 401k absolutely and that was just again that was the more extreme kind of pathway if you wanted to go that way personally look i'll go into my story even taking into account what i said just five or six minutes ago, I still put 10% of my income into my 401k. And I do that because I have a rather generous 401k plan in which I could get that 10% matched for another 10%. So I still put my 10% in, but I also save outside of tax advantage accounts. But as far as how I want to start off in real estate, as longtime listeners of the show will know, I recently purchased my first home back in March. So this home is in a very economical area. It's a little bit away from, you know, the center of town. And I was able to put down a pretty decent down payment. My plan for getting into real estate is within the next 15 to 18 months, I'm eventually going to move to a different house. And unlike what most people do, when I move into that next house, I'm going to keep this one and I'm going to turn this one into a rental. So it's not even that I'm going out of my way to purchase an additional property just for investment purposes. I'm going to upgrade my standard of living at some point, buy that next house, and turn this one into a rental instead of selling it. And you can do it just like that. You can keep investing in your 401k, start paying down your current house, and then when you move to your next house, boom, now you have a rental. Yeah, and, and I think what you're doing, Alex, is like exactly what I did when I was like your age. I mean, just this is the part that not a lot of people realize to where I have over 4,500 units. Like, it was the stuff that you're doing now or what I did when I was in my early 20s to build up that nest state, to get that net worth at least up to half a million bucks. So then then you can kind of go into more scalable investments such as syndications down the road. I do want to get to syndications. Believe me, I do, and we'll get there. But for now, let's see. We've talked about purchasing the rentals or saving up and buying a rental, or maybe you're just buying a new house and keeping your old house as a rental. Let's go into a little bit more of maybe the management. So our hypothetical listener that's wanting to get into real estate is working a full-time job and then is picking up a rental through everything we've talked about so far. So what are some ways for either maybe self-management or how can you get that passive income with real estate? Maybe a property manager or a turnkey? Would you mind going into that a little bit? Yeah, so I'm a big proponent for paying third-party professional property management to do all my dirty work for me. I don't know how to do an eviction. I know kind of the process, but I have my property managers do that. I know nothing about fixing anything. I have my property managers find people to fix stuff. 
and you know the way I can do this is go into property that actually cash flows, so you can pay that ten percent to the property manager to do this for you. A lot of people they may want to buy properties near them where the numbers don't necessarily make sense. So, which is why they cannot use a property manager, and I think that's a mistake from the beginning. You know, outsource what you can, and don't be a landlord; be an investor is the the big thing. And that is definitely the path that I want to go down. But let's say we have someone that maybe doesn't a hundred percent understand what a property manager does or the term of cash flowing. So you had mentioned before that we're paying property managers ten percent of the rents per month. So what are some of the tasks that maybe property managers do for you that you don't have to do yourself? You mentioned it as dirty work. Yeah, so the property managers kind of do everything. They find the tenant, they lease it up, they manage the contracts. They, When the tenant has a complaint that the toilet doesn't work or something needs to be fixed, the property manager should do everything. There's different levels. You know, this is where you have to find the blend between how much you want to have control or you're just giving your property manager full reign. You know, maybe you approve expenses over a hundred bucks or a thousand bucks. Depends how much of a control freak you are. But yeah, essentially the property kind of property manager runs the day to day. You can kind of guide them and keep them in line. But yeah, they normally take about ten percent of the income. So you know, this is why we stick to properties that are one percent rent to value ratio or higher. And what's the rent to value ratio? Well, you take the monthly rent divided by the purchase price. And that needs to be 1% or higher. So a $100,000 house needs to rent for at least a thousand bucks. Because, you know, assume that you're bringing a thousand dollars of rental revenue, 10% is usually going to go to your property manager. 10% is going to go to repairs. Another 10% should go to CapEx, such as, you know, preparing the roof every so often, big things like that. And then you got to pay your mortgage and your taxes and insurance. So all that should be paid. And then you should have at least, you know, a couple hundred bucks left over, which is your cash flow. And that was actually another question I had for you. You've mentioned about five or six times thus far that we need cash flowing properties. So I'm curious with someone of your experience level who started out in single family homes, what do you consider, quote unquote, a decent cash flow? Like, Are we talking $200 a month, $300 a month? Like, Where is the barometer of success here? Yeah, I mean, I'd say like you want to be able to at least cash flow 10%. On what your original investment was so you know i mean on a hundred thousand dollar house that rents are a thousand bucks which is your typical turnkey rental pricing yeah that's a couple hundred bucks that you want to have as a buffer because someone's you you're, you may go through a vacancy or you may have a bigger repair right so like that's why you have to run your numbers accordingly and people want to download my analyzer i mean i think the spreadsheet really kind of explains this more in detail you can, you can go down my analyzer and you can look, you can kind of type in your own expenses. There's footnotes on what to use for vacancy, repairs, CapEx, property management fees. And I think once you, you're kind of diving into the second, third layer of the onion, but I think that's what really helps explain this. I mean, you can download that simplepassivecashflow.com slash analyzer. It's a free download there, but you know, you buy properties, you underwrite it conservatively. So when things don't necessarily go your way, there's a big repair here, there, that you still are cash flow positive at the end of the year. All righty. And then something you had mentioned was CapEx. Now, I wanted to just quickly give a vocabulary definition there. So your CapEx or your capital expenditures is basically a savings account for your rentals 
where you need to replace big things, such as, you know, the roof needs to be replaced every 20 years. Maybe you need to buy a refrigerator or a furnace goes out or, you know, something big like that goes out and it's your house. So you're responsible for paying for that. The CapEx expense is not really an expense so much as a savings account for when these things happen. Yeah, think of it like as your own escrow account to kind of put away for that rainy day eventually to come. And you know, in that analyzer too, I have a little separate tab to calculate your CapEx budget in, in your own escrow. Um, it's more of a theoretical thing, right? Because you know, the way it's created is like you have like things like the roof that say it's it lasts for 10 years. It figures out the annual price for that roof, you know, like or like the HVAC. HVAC needs to be replaced every dozen years or so. So it kind of figures out the, the average annual price for that. And it sums up the average annual prices. And that's what you should be budgeting every year for CapEx. And if you look down the list, it, it can be a substantial amount, which not a lot of investors are going to realize. Gotcha. And I am going to have that link to his analyzer in the description below, as well as the links to Lane's website, podcast, and all that good stuff. That is going to be in the description below. Now, I do want to follow up on something else you had mentioned. You had mentioned turnkey rentals. Would you mind going into maybe the difference between going and buying a rental yourself versus turnkey? Yeah, so turnkeys is kind of this ubiquitous term of it's a product that a rehabber has purchased to stress and has fixed up all the major components such as the roof, the electrical, the plumbing, put in new flooring. And sometimes they'll even put a tenant in there for you. And that's the word turnkey right it's super simple but there's no there's no standard for this you have to kind of verify things on your own you should still get an inspection on the property you should have your own third-party property management to kind of be your eyes and ears but that's how i started with these turnkey rentals and it's a great way to kind of start off with the with the training wheels on before you kind of get your own broker and kind of do it on your own so do you recommend maybe going into turnkey before maybe buying another house in your area it depends, right? I mean, especially if you're investing remotely and you know nothing about the area, this can really help expedite things for you. Uh, when you're buying turnkey, you know, you want to be careful that you're not buying through a marketer. You want to be buying directly through the turnkey provider because they're just going to add a little markup in there that in this day and age, I mean, the margins on these deals are just so slim. You know, this ain't 2015 anymore. And so I would kind of suggest that, but I mean, just know that you're kind of paying more of a retail price. Again, you know, that we're trying to stay away from the retail pricing. But in the beginning, when you're buying your first one, you're paying for convenience and you just got to get started. It may not be a 20% return on your money every year on your first deal, but to get started is so invaluable. And then you can, you can prove your deal flow from there. Okay, so we've gotten into saving every month or saving every year, buying a house every year potentially, or if you want to be a little bit more conservative, keep putting money in your 401k and maybe buy houses on the side. Maybe you're just having rentals as you're moving from house to house. We've talked about going and buying your own property and having a property manager. We've talked about turnkey rentals. Let's say that our listener here has Listen to all this advice. It's a few years in the future. You had mentioned a threshold of having a net worth of around half a million dollars before you get into it. And I'd promised we were going to get here. And now here we are. Let's talk about some syndications. So maybe you have five or six houses under your belt. Maybe you're having that net worth of over 500K. What is a syndication and why would you want to go that route over just continuing what's been working? Yeah, so a syndication is basically... 
think of it like a crowdfund, a mini crowdfund of investors pooling their money together to buy a larger investment. The analogy we like to use is the airplane. So in the airplane, you have the cockpit with the general partner sitting up there flying the airplane. These are the guys who find the deals. Usually they're like one in a thousand deals. So they're the, the cream of the crop. They're deals outside of the reach of the average investor. And they are, you know, the general partnership with the loans in their names and then the investors need to get any debt in their own personal names. They operate it, they manage it. They kind of do everything and distribute checks. Whereas the passive investors, the limited partners, they come and sit and coach, pay their money, get on the plane and go to sleep and cash their checks. And so a lot of accredited investors will pick this path. And this is kind of where I found myself back in 2015 when I had 11 rental properties. I had an eviction or two every year, some kind of big catastrophe that happened, like a tree fell on my house or a, a flood in my basement. And, you know, even if I had property management, you know, doing all my dirty work for me, it, it's it's a headache. It's it's a pain in the butt. For 11 rentals, that was, I you know, I, at a few hundred bucks cash flow per each, that was maybe $3,000 a month. Nothing I'm complaining about, but let's face it, what American family can survive off $3,000? You're going to need three times that. So three times all my problems. And I quickly realized that this whole rental property thing is not really scalable. And around 2015, I started to invest money in myself, join different masterminds and get around other higher net worth accredited investors, such as doctors, lawyers, engineers. And a lot of these people were a little bit further along the line as myself. And all of them had the same mentality where, yeah, at one time they owned rental properties, but they grew out of it and they became more of an accredited syndication investor where the game plan was to invest into dozens of these opportunities. So they diversify with different partners, different locations, different asset classes, you know, apartments, self-storage, home parks, developments and different business plans. So this kind of opens up the whole sphere of, you know, better tax advantages when you start to bring in cost segregations on these bigger deals. And, you know, this is how the wealthy do things, right? We pay little to no taxes. Well, that certainly sounds fantastic to me. So a syndication is basically, it's not like you're going out buying the property anymore and having the property manager do it for you. What's happening is you have all these people who have gone through that process before they each put in, let's say, a very large capital injection here. And then you get two other very experienced people to go in and they actually basically act as the property manager, quote unquote, and run the thing while everyone else who put in the money in the first place are earning this big return. Essentially, it's as passive as you can get, but it's sort of a you have to go through the baptism by fire of having your own rentals to really get to the point to where you are eligible to invest in this kind of stuff. Right, right. I mean, it, it, that's essentially, you know, if somebody's kind of starting out, that's essentially the the journey to get there. In our syndication deals, a lot of the investors that we have are not sophisticated, but they are accredited. So they kind of skip over the whole adolescent stage of buying their own rentals. A lot of them have never owned rental properties before, and they're just accredited. And they make a salary of $250,000 or more or a million dollar net worth and above. And they kind of just jump right into the party. General partnerships can have one person, can have you know a bunch of people. But in most of the guys, it's a team effort. I think that's the big thing. All righty. And I do want to 
100% be explicit about this. So something we've mentioned several times now is an accredited investor. Now, being an accredited investor has one of two qualifications. You either make over two or $300,000 a year or you have a million dollars of net worth. So being in a syndication, you have to be an accredited investor, meaning you have to have that income requirement or you have to have that net worth requirement. So a lot of people are able to quote unquote skip the line of buying their own rentals to get to that point because, you know, maybe they're a doctor that's making half a million dollars a year or a lawyer who's making half a million dollars a year, whatever. And being an accredited investor is not just an arbitrary thing. There is a government agency, I believe it's the SEC, that does this accreditation. And the point of that is so you don't have someone like me who doesn't have $100,000 to lose, doesn't lose all of my money in this big syndication deal. So it's sort of a protective thing to where lower net worth people can't be jumping into these riskier investments because they don't have too much. But that's kind of a misnomer, what she just said. It's kind of partially true. The truth is 90 to 97% of syndicated deals out there are open to non-accredited investors. They just have to be sophisticated. The reason why you know I don't see them or you, may, you guys may not see them is because they're only going out to a private network. So there's kind of two types of deals out there. There's deals that are generally solicited, so put out on podcasts, Facebook ads, or gen, you know open marketed. Once the syndicator does that, they are only allowed to bring in accredited investors. And these are called Reg D 506C, like CAT deals. Those are actually the minority of deals out there. Most deals are 506B, like boy deals, where it is going out to the syndicator's private network. At that point, again, they cannot generally solicit or openly market, and they can take in a limited number of non-accredited investors, but those non-accredited investors need to be sophisticated. And the term sophisticated is a very nebulous term. <laughs> but to me, I mean, if you own rental properties and you know the risk and rewards of real estate, I would probably consider that person sophisticated. But that is where this becomes a relationship business because you have to develop that relationship with said syndicator. Okay, and now I'm learning stuff because that's what I had said before is how I understood it. But now that I know, maybe I need to start reaching out to my local real estate groups and start getting involved there. <laughs> yeah, and but that's the problem, right? People ask me, where do you find these syndicated deals? And I'm like, well, unfortunately, your local RIA or the free Facebook forums that we all know and love that it's hashtag BP stands for broke people. Right. The, the people you're trying to find to find these deals are high net worth, mostly accredited investors. These people are not hanging out at the local meetup group, local RIA, free happy hour. This is not where they're hanging out. They don't hang out. <laughs> they have their personal networks of high net worth accredited friends that are connected with operators that put together these opportunities. I mean, this is the essence of a country club, right? Not many people play golf these days, but that's what the country club is all about. <laughs> back then. Alrighty. So it's kind of something you just got to figure out and know people just kind of while you're on the journey. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but I say that because I think a lot of people waste too much time going to those local real meetings. When you go there, you're, you're interacting with lower net worth people, a lot of which don't have a full-time professional job. And for them, it makes sense to go flip some houses and wholesale houses. 
even to find peers and referrals for turnkey rentals, remote investing, I would say the local RIA probably isn't the best place for that either. Well, that just gives me a whole lot more to think about because that was my thought process is that the local RIA is, which is the real estate investor organization is what that is. They have multiple of them just all over the country. I mean, you can start your own. Basically, it's these Facebook groups where they have meetups maybe every week or every month. And it's sort of a get to know the other area investors. And that's kind of what we're talking about here with the local RIA. So I guess I just got to get connected. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you got you to gotta find the right people, right? I mean, let's lo- walk through this logically, right? Most people in America do not have college degrees. Most people in America do not live in houses that are more than a few hundred thousand dollars. Most people don't have money. Therefore, most people going to a free random meetup may not be like you. And this is why I spend like, you know, some masterminds I'm in, I spend $25,000 a year to rub shoulders with people that are kind of on my level because the networks are so important. Well, all righty, that just gives us all something else to think about. But let's go ahead and because that's some problems that we're going to have hopefully five to 10 years from now, not so much what we're dealing with tomorrow. Right. For now, just go buy your first rental, get sort of sophisticated so you can intelligently hold a conversation. So by a chance, when you do come across a high net worth, highly connected accredited investor, you can hold an intelligent conversation with them so you have a basis to build a long-term organic relationship. Well, okay. I could not have put that better myself. So let's kind of review what we've gone over. So we've talked about maybe getting away from the stereotypical, put all your money in a 401k, max it out every year, and boom, you'll be fine at age 65. We've talked about that. We've talked about having your individual rentals where you're going out, buying a house, buying a house, buying a house, having it either with turnkey rentals or you're buying them yourself. You have your property managers going to manage that for you. Once you get to a high enough level, you're able to jump into these syndications. Hopefully you've been building that network the whole time because you've been becoming more sophisticated. Before we go, something I want to bring up is what would be some maybe first steps for someone who doesn't have a rental but has a steady job, what would be some actionable materials or some actionable things that they can do to really start this process, get that snowball rolling? Yeah, I mean, I think the prerequisite to a lot of this is you got to be good with your money. Right? You got to be able to be net cash flow in your own personal budget on a year. I mean, most of my clients are able to save at the least $30,000 from their paycheck every year to put to a rental property or syndication. So that's the prerequisite to it all. I mean, the next is figure out where you are. If you're a credit investor, you should probably be looking for syndications. But if you're just getting started, you know, pick up that turnkey rental, right? My podcast, I've kind of talked more about syndications lately. But, you know, when I started the podcast back in 2016, it was all about turnkey rentals. So I would say check out my first like eight or a dozen podcasts because they were more tactful back then about where do I go buy these rentals? How do I do it? How do I talk to property managers? Stuff like that. But yeah, just kind of fill your head and get around the right people. Because a lot of this is referral-based. Who do you work with? A lot of the turnkey providers, they change all the time. It's kind of a revolving door. So get around the, the right people that are pure passive investors and build real relationships with them. Well, all righty. And I think with that we can go ahead and sort of transition to the end of the show here. So something I want to ask you, just a question I've honestly never really asked anyone else before, but you've mentioned fill your head with knowledge. So before we go here, I definitely want to ask you, 
What are maybe some books or some other resources that you'd recommend for people who want to look a little bit deeper into real estate? Yeah, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of books, but I would recommend like Millionaire Real Estate Investor by Gary Keller. I mean, a lot of good fundamentals in there. But once you've read that book, I would say stop reading books and analyze deals. You know, again, they can pick up my analyzer and they can just start chugging properties to there and, you know, running the numbers. I mean, there's really nothing more important than just getting your numbers straight and kind of, you know, just building up a good data point collection of like where the market is in that particular area. So you become more sophisticated in understanding, you know, what is a good deal? What is a normal deal? and What is a horrible deal? Okay. So something else. Where can my audience find out more about you? We've mentioned your website. We've mentioned your podcast. If you want to go over those one more time, or where can my audience find out more about you and connect with you? Yeah, so they can uh, check out the podcast, Simple Passive Cashflow, and then my URL is simplepassivecashflow.com. If you guys are interested in kind of getting connected with my free Facebook group, it is free, so you pay for what you get. Again, always, I would say it's a more passive investor group can join my Facebook group by uh, finding us on Facebook or um, sending me an email through my website. And the last question I have for you, did you have fun? I'm always having fun. Not Why not do it? <laughs> well, I'm sure it's really easy to have fun when you're out there in, what is it, Honolulu and not having to work a nine to five? Well, I'm working for myself these days and kind of putting together deals. So it's a lot better than working for the mat. I'll tell you that. <laughs> it's, it, it's a holiday today, but to me, it's just another day working for myself. <laughs> well, with that, I think we can go ahead and end the show now that we have that happy ending of working for yourself, not having to worry about what's a holiday and what's not. <sighs> right. I mean, that's what financial freedom is, right? Doing what you want, with whom you want, when you want, how you want. Absolutely. And I cannot think of a better way to end the show than with that phrase, right there. So for all of you listening, you have a lot to think about, a lot to read. Go check out that analyzer, find some real estate around you, run it through that analyzer and just see what the possibilities are. See if you can't find some turnkey website, see if you can't just find the resources, go out there and see just how doable this is. And then go look at your budget and see how doable it is to save that $20,000. Because once you get the first one, that first one will help you get the second one so on, so forth, but you have to start. You need to go out there. You need to start doing stuff. It's not just going to happen. So just go out there, get started, look at those resources. And while you're doing that, I'll see you guys next week.